Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Hello, I'm Kelvin Cheadle, Director of Capstick's HR Advisory Service. Welcome to the second in the series of NHS Employer and Capstick's podcasts on the topic of the workforce of 2020. Today, my guest is Lord Norman Warner, former Health Minister in Tony Blair's government and someone who's had a very active role in shaping the NHS workforce. Um, My first question really is to try and set the scene around the complexities of the current workforce challenge and I wanted to ask you, given the complexity of the current agenda, devolution, new models of care, Can you give our audience your general thoughts on what the workforce of 2020 will look like? Will it be very different to that today? Well, I think the NHS faces a lot of challenges. It certainly does face the problem of and challenge of devolution and new models of care. But it's also in the middle of a very considerable funding crisis, along with its partner, social care. A lot of talk, we've been talking for 30 years about integration. We're trying to move towards a more integrated health and social care system. And inevitably, and this is the thing which is not getting a lot of coverage, the workforce is going to have to behave much more flexibly. So how do we get from where we are today towards that flexible model? Because I guess the junior doctors issue has shown that it's difficult very challenging to achieve that in a in a smooth way. Well I think I came out of the end of a, a, a period where people believed the way to run the NHS was command and control from the centre and that did a lot of good things. It did uh, improved access for the people from the much maligned targets. We did start to get the NHS on a, a, a journey of better choice for patients and we injected a bit of competition but we are now in such a difficult spot that the idea that we can drive this change from the centre, I think, is nonsense. This is now down to people at the local level. If the NHS collapses in parts of the country, it's going to be largely a reflection of a failure to deal with change at the local and regional levels. Because if there is no appetite for that, if there is inertia in the system locally, no amount of good chief executive action at the centre is going to change the challenges that people face locally. So taking and understanding the argument you're making about local flexibility and autonomy, how do you incentivise the workforce to work in a different way and give them the motivation and indeed the market edge to deliver that for the NHS? Well, you still have to keep coming back to this issue. Where do people owe loyalty? Do they owe loyalty to something called a British National Health Service or do they owe loyalty to their local workplace and their local employers? All my experience in the public sector is most people are driven by more local loyalties than national loyalties in in terms of their workplace. There is an interesting badge called the NHS, but at the end of the day, it's the local workplaces and the immediate environment of those local workplaces, which may make most people get up in the morning and go to work. And I think unless we face up to that reality and actually start reducing the constraints on, uh, from the centre, 
we won't succeed in getting the kinds of massive cultural change that we're looking for. Just think about integrating the workforce between health and social care. Why would uh, people want to give up their place of employment and their current contracts just because someone in Westminster and Whitehall is telling them to do so? They are more likely to do that if, it, if they have bought in to a set of changes for their local services. That's, that's the lessons of history. And the faster the NHS learns that lesson, the better it will be for both the staff and the patients. In our first interview, we spoke to Dean Rawls. When I asked Dean about how we manage some of this change, he focused very much on staff engagement as the key to success. So what you're saying is that local engagement empowering staff is the key to achieving that change. I'm, I'm sure that's absolutely right. But what that means is you've got to have local leaders who are, whose shoulders are broad enough to not worry about the occasional thunderbolt coming down from the centre. When I was a minister, I used to get asked whether people had permission to do something locally. And I used to say to them, for goodness sake, don't write to me in Whitehall and ask for permission. Just get on and do what you need to do. And I think there is still a culture in the NHS where people look upwards for permission. And we're past that point now. People have got to take responsibility. Locally, there's got to be local leaders, and there's got to be local leaders um, who can actually engage with people and try to discuss with them the benefits of working in different ways. And presumably that approach would be your answer to how we carry the staff and the unions with us on that change programme, because I guess the junior doctors dispute has been an illustration of how difficult it is to achieve that kind of change on a national platform. I don't want to be too much of a doom and gloom Cassandra, but I think the junior doctors um, contract dispute is a good example of where you could end up with the NHS on a persistent basis. Um, at the end of the day, the arrangements for seven-day working are going to depend on a set of local negotiations. Why are we having a dispute over a contract at a national level between junior doctors and the BMA and the health secretary? The health secretary can't work out the arrangements that need to take place in different parts of the country to get seven days working. People have got to try and, and that includes the unions, they've got to start thinking that they can't fix all these problems by negotiating at the centre. Of course you need national pension arrangements and some sense of national entitlements, but trying to actually micromanage all these employment issues from the centre is a recipe for total disaster. So presumably through that answer you think HR directors and the HR community have a very pivotal role to play in helping shape that future because they will be the local negotiators in that framework. Well I think you point here really to a problem which struck me very strongly when I was a minister. Admittedly that's 10 years ago but there were too many people in HR in the NHS in my time as a minister who were interested in transactional work rather than organisational design and development. 
And now, I don't, in a sense, mind whether it's the HR director or whether it's the chief executive, but somebody on the senior management team has to start taking responsibility locally for what is the organisational design and staff development uh, programmes and plans that you actually need. Because none of this, this set of changes that we've been talking about will happen because the gnomes have come in the night and done it. It's going to require people locally to have a plan, a program for how do they want to reshape their organisation and how do they want to actually ensure they've invested enough in staff development. Um, you were very active in the House of Lords in the passage of the devolution bill and uh, I'm interested to know your thoughts about where we're up to. We have the new devolved model for Manchester in theory active from April. Other areas, Cornwall, the Isle of Wight are moving towards devolved models. How do you see devolution being played out on a large scale across the country? Well, I think what we're seeing is a major experiment in Greater Manchester, and we're going to have to watch that extremely carefully. At the moment, there are a lot of checks in which NHS England is required to really keep some kind of constraint on what happens in Manchester financially. Somewhere along the way, we will have to morph to a system in which Greater Manchester, having been given its budget and a set of requirements, is allowed a lot of freedom about how he delivers that. And that means a really big change for the Health Secretary. If Greater Manchester decide to take beds out of their acute hospitals and develop local community services, as they will need to do, then we do not want the Department of Health and the Health Secretary stopping, or NHS England for that matter, stopping them from doing that. And that's what devolution means. And it, it will mean, I think, at some stage, although there's no political appetite for doing this, recasting the 2012 Act. That is almost inevitable, in my view, if you're really serious about devolution. So taking your crystal ball and looking at the workforce of 2020, how do you see the devolved models playing out? Do you see lots of Manchesters? Do you think we'll still be in the formative stages of trying to test out the boundaries between local government and, and the, at the NHS? Do you think it will need some major further structural change in organisational boundaries? Well, I think the $64,000 question at the moment is how do you carry on funding the NHS um, in a way which enables it to make change and keep the show on the road? And one of the conditions which keeps being forgotten of Simon Stevens' requirements to deliver the five-year forward view was adequately funded social care. Now, that is simply not happening. And that is not the problem of the NHS. That is the problem of government ministers and the Chancellor in particular. And at the end of the day, if this country does not continue to fund adequately uh, publicly funded adult social care, the care of last resort ends up being the NHS. And all that it does is it stacks up older people in the worst possible position which requires staff to look after them. And that is in the medical wards of acute hospitals. That is the worst place to be for many elderly people, and it is the most expensive place to be. Now, if we don't tackle that problem, 
we will ensure that we go on having more people than we need to working in acute hospitals. And the real, real trick is to actually fund social care properly and at the same time try to get more people in the NHS working in a community setting. I don't care whether they're based in a hospital or not, but they should be spending the hours in the day more out in the community delivering community-based services and stop this remorseless flow of people into A&E departments and acute hospital beds. The five-year forward view will not be delivered unless at the end of the day we have a much more flexible workforce and we have um, employment contracts and development and professional qualifications which match that particular need. Norman, thank you for sharing your views with us this morning. Good to see you again. Thank you very much, Kelvin. That concludes the second in our series of podcasts with leaders talking about the workforce of 2020. Next up is an interview with Danny Mortimer, the current Chief Executive of NHS Employers. We'll be talking to him about the transition from being a workforce director in a trust to his national role. I was really fortunate to work with some fantastic colleagues over the year and I'm even more fortunate now because I work with all those directors across England. Giving him his opportunity to talk about how we change the workforce of 2020 both in terms of pay, structures and contracts. You can't start that kind of development of a new way of working and a new way of delivering services by looking at contracts first. That's the wrong place to start, actually. You have to start with the vision for services. And to get his unique perspective of what it's like working on a national platform dealing with some of these issues. We'll see you next time.